This is The Red Line, where we talk to three expert witnesses about one issue shaping the news both here and overseas. There was a time when the hammer and sickle of the Communist Party flew above the majority of Europe. But a lot's changed in the last decades. The flags have come down, the people have changed, but the geopolitics remain the same. In between the nations of Ukraine and Moldova lies the breakaway republic of Transnistria, the last remnant of the Soviet Union in Europe. You won't find it on map or on the UN list of countries, but it has all the trappings you would expect from a sovereign nation. Passports, borders, armies, GDP. For all intents and purposes, this is an independent country. Or so it would seem. This week, we dive into the last shred of the once mighty Soviet Union, the Republic of Transnistria. Part 1. Forever in Limbo. But, you know, it all depends on who's telling this story. And I think history is fascinating in that way. Um, Who gets to write the narrative? There's a proverb that it's the victor. In this case, everybody loses, I think, except for Moscow. Tyrone Shaw is a professor of writing and literature at Northern Vermont University. He's the author of Bastard Republic, Tattered Edge of the Fallen Empire, the best-selling book on Transnistria and its tough past. That when the Soviet Union began to unravel, a number of the constituent republics declared independence. Moldova which was Moldavian social, uh, Soviet Socialist Republic is, is, is no exception. And so this nascent republic declared its independence. Meanwhile, east of the Nistru River, the Transnistrians, which is that region that ended up breaking away, um, had grave reservations about this. One can attribute it to um, ethnic issues, as some do, One can contribute it to competing mafiosi factions, as others do. But for whatever reasons, and maybe for all of the above, Transnistria, that region, declared itself a separatist region, which set the stage for the brief and relatively bloody civil war. So give us a quick overview of the Transnistrian situation. What is going on over there? Often this is cast as um, an ethnic conflict. There is some understanding of that. Some say, no, it was deliberately manipulated this. And when I talk about ethnic conflict, I'm referring to the ethnic majority in Moldova, which is Romanian. Because Moldova has a long history of being molested, if you will, by both uh, Bucharest and Moscow for several hundreds of years. Moldova was in fact, much of it was in fact part of the Russian Empire. It then broke away and in the interwar years, 1918, 1919 to the beginning of World War II, it was part of Romania, but not east of the river. Transnistria never was. That was a separate oblast. So this sets up again competing narratives. For the Transnistrians, for example, as I pointed out in the postscript of the book, the 70th anniversary of the 
great patriotic war was celebrated as a war of liberation from the Nazis. If you're on the other side of the river, you would not see such celebrations in Moldova proper. They regarded uh, the end of the war and the occupation by the Soviets as um, a Soviet occupation and essentially an assault on their Latin culture. Again, it all depends on your perspective and who's telling the story. I think everyone can agree that this was a brief and bloody war that was contained by the Russian 14th Army and headed by Alexander Lebed. They stepped in in early July, if my dates are correct, in 1992 and brokered or enforced a ceasefire. The status quo pretty much remains today. Initially, there were several thousand Russian troops on Transnistrian soil, which is Moldovan soil, according to international law, um, to maintain the peace. About a thousand of those um, troops remain in what is often regarded by the, certainly the Moldovans in the international community as an illegal occupation. For the Transnistrians, it is um, their safety net. So to give people a better understanding, Transnistria is about one-fifth of Moldova. It's the eastern bank of the Dnieper River, which runs right through Moldova. The eastern bank of the river, Transnistria, speaks Russian and identifies closer with the government in Moscow. And the western bank of the river speaks Moldovan, and they identify with the government in Kizhenev, the capital of Moldova. They view themselves as a separate, independent republic with their own laws, their own borders, and their own foreign policy, completely separate to that of the rest of Moldova, even though that the UN views it as part of Moldova proper. You visited both capital cities. How would you say the capital of Transnistria, the city of Tiraspol, compares to the capital of Moldova, the city of Kiznev? It's a, a sleepy village, almost, in comparison to Chisinau. That said, the Tiraspol I visited in 2015 was vastly different from the somewhat sinister, gray, drab, and fraught city that I first visited in 1998. Arguably still corrupt, but less um, overtly so, and certainly less overtly repressive than the Igor Smirnov regime. It's widely regarded as, a, um, as, as either Russian mafiosi or acting for Russian mafiosi, depending on whom you speak with. But Smirnov was able to secure a huge amount of foreign aid from Russia. So it is, in comparison to Moldova, regarded as a far more repressive society. And Whereas Moldova, to um, a greater degree, is, is on the surface, is a, is a more democratic country. That said, I would say that both of them are continually undermined by endemic corruption. So who officially recognizes Transnistria? Nobody. This is part of the um, existential weirdness that, that I associate with the, the plight of the Transnistrians. It's really a very sad situation from my perspective as an outside observer. They have all the trappings of statehood. They've got their own currency. They've got uh, their own military, their own postage stamps, their own government. But they are not recognized anywhere as an independent entity, not even by Russia. 
So Transnistria is the last country in Europe to have the famous communist hammer and sickle on the flag. Are they truly a communist country still, or is it just a remnant from a previous time? Absolutely not. I think what you've got are the um, the worst aspects, I think, of communism w without any of the perceived benefits of, of uh, socialist safety net. Instead of, instead of the oligarchs being the communist party, it's, it's an oligarchy. There's, there's certainly very little ideology involved except this, the salvation for the Transnistrians lies in an Eastern orientation, not to the West. That I think is an underlying belief that props up the regime. Why is Transnistria so dedicated to not being a part of Moldova? What's pushing them away from the government there? Well, let's go back to, to, to one of the issues, which um, I think is partially credited for sparking the civil war. And that was the declaration of an official, one official state language uh, when Moldova became independent. And the decree was Romanian was going to be the official language, which in a way um, for the 36, 38 percent who were not Moldovan speakers, um, was a, a great provocation. Another factor was the possibility that Moldova would rejoin Romania, which people on the other side of the Nistru River wanted no part of. Whether these uh, fears were realistic or not, they were certainly fanned by um, entities in Tiraspol, ginning up support for um, secession. Language is a very powerful symbolic motivator, as you know, um, across the world. And that had a lot to do with, I think, exacerbating the tensions that were already developing. So if Moldova is so keen on reincorporating Transnistria into Moldova proper, why doesn't it just annex Moldova? Why doesn't it send in the troops to take it? Well, to begin with, there's this little issue of a thousand Russian troops right there um, in Transnistria. I suspect that they would be greeted with the same kind of result that, that happened when uh, the Georgians went back into South Ossetia. And for our audience, can you explain what actually happened there? What happened when the Georgians sent in troops to recapture their breakaway republic, South Ossetia? Yeah, they were routed. And it was a, a very brief war. The Russians moved into Georgia and um, slapped them around a bit and established a new status quo. Moldova has no such army that, that could tangle with the Russians. Immediately, there's um, at least a thousand Russian troops near the border and easily airborne units from, from whatever Russian army division could be there in hours and it would be a disaster. So then why doesn't the Transnistrian government just annex the rest of Moldova? Well, they wouldn't be able to do that either because you've got uh, conservatively um, over 60% of the Moldovans uh, just ethnically Romanian, they're not going to accept what they would look at as a reimposition of, of 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 Russian domination, cultural domination, and political domination on them. They would they would they would they would absolutely um, seek help from Romania, 
And I think the Russians realize there would be a, a, a seriously escalating European war if they were to do that. So how important is Transnistria to the Russian foreign policy going forward? That's a beautiful question. I think in terms of their long game, it's quite important. And, and let, let me explain this. Um, I believe that what they want to do is maintain situations of strategic geographic instability on their flanks to their benefit. That's what they want to do. There's also um, some economic considerations that I'll, I'll bring up in a minute. And this is, I, I cannot prove this, but I think that um, the facts would bear it out. But to begin with, keeping Moldova destabilized, keeping tensions on the border, pretty much will help forestall any joining of NATO, which they, they just do not want NATO that close to them. Secondly, it weakens these constituent republics that they still view as their backyard, as their near abroad. One can easily see that depriving Moldova proper of what essentially was its industrial base, its only power plant, a lot of natural resources has kept that country perpetually weak. Of course, they haven't helped themselves either with bad governance and rampant corruption, but still that secession of what appears to be an insignificant percentage of their landmass, but it isn't considering what it contains, um, aids in keeping that country weak and vacillating. So we're talking about this agreement at the end of the Cold War between Gorbachev, then president of the Soviet Union, uh, and George Bush, then president of the United States, where they agreed that Germany would be allowed to unify together, but the NATO would not move any further east than that. Yet today, NATO has moved its borders right up into the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, uh, and potentially now Ukraine. You know, does Russia feel threatened by this now that the fact that the NATO the NATO forces are right up against their borders in uh, in the Baltics? In the grand scheme of things, I think they believe it as, as, as another example of Western treachery and the intentions of the West to um, stymie, encircle, and otherwise um, create problems for Russia. And I believe me, I am not an apologist for Putin, but I understand, um, I think it's a, for a nation that has historically feared encirclement, and has had suffered horribly from a secession, succession of wars. I think that if I were in a position in the Kremlin, I would feel very much the same way in terms of being very, very alarmed by the encroachment of NATO um, right up to the borders of Russia and looking at it as uh, something that certainly would have malevolent intent. Where do you see this conflict progressing to in the next few years? My guess is it's not going to go anywhere. So, I mean, I, th I think you've got, um, you've got a very ironic situation here where you have on either side of the river, people yearning for something that they're not going to get. In the Transnistrians case, I think what they're not going to get is joining the Russian Federation, though they, they very well may happen at some point, and they're not going to get statehood. I, I think that Moscow is, is far more adept at the long political game than, than the West is. And we have to keep in mind that 
This is what the Russians regard as their near abroad, that they have had strategic and cultural ties to, to this area for centuries. And it's also during the Cold War been a militarily very sensitive region. When Tiraspol was a major uh, military headquarters for one of the uh, Red Army's Southern commands. So what's left? They're, they're living in this limbo that is problematic for them. This conflict has been frozen in place now for over two decades, with both sides staring across the river at each other. Both sides know that if they were to escalate it, it would likely kick off another huge worldwide conflict between Russia and the West. So for now, things remain frozen into place to keep a lid on the whole situation. But what is it like to live there? How does day-to-day life work for a country that isn't on any maps, isn't recognized by anybody, and has very little friends abroad? For that, we turn to our next guest. Part 2. Life as normal as it could be. Uh, to somebody who has never been to Transnistria, it's uh, a little bit strange place because it's uh, different from other places you visit. Dmitry Tokorov has a degree in linguistics and international relations from the University of Tiraspol. He's also born and bred in Transnistria and currently resides in the capital, Tiraspol. Yes, uh, so people usually have cliches about Transnistria saying that it's a country stopped in the USSR or it's like a last remain, remaining part of the USSR or the, the, when you go there you are back in the USSR. It's slightly true but not completely. Transnistria is a country which is small and which is fighting for its independence so it's it cannot go to a full integration with its neighbors because it's, it's trying to secede from these neighbors, mainly Moldova, and that's why it's slightly touched by modern uh, globalization, you won't find any restaurant, any uh, international uh, bigger business player, actor that is present in the region, in Europe, in Eastern Europe. So you won't find them in Transnistria. Like it's the only country that has no McDonald's, no Starbucks, no big chain restaurants, no world famous marks, but it has only local uh, brands and uh, local stuff which is also very good and very interesting and which can uh, be a good memory if you visit the country. So to summarize in your opinion, what is the difference between Moldova and Transnistria? Throughout the history, we have never been together in the same state except 40, let's say 49 years period within the USSR. But being part of Moldova within the USSR is like being part of Spain and the European Union. So we have a very short period of history and like in 20 years, we will have much longer time of being independent from Moldova than being together with Moldova. Like if Moldova is mainly Moldavian, so you have this Moldavian appearances everywhere in the country and Moldavian speech. So if you go to Transnistria, it's different linguistically, it's different by appearance, by how the villages, how the towns look, by how the people look, and, uh, in, in, and even in culture. So when you cross the border, you immediately feel like you're in another country. From the Transnistrian point of view, what were you fighting for in the Civil War of 1992? It will be very easy to understand uh, it 
So Moldova had a nationalist government. It was a national front that was at power in those years, late 80s. We, we, together, we were together with Moldova only for 50 years, from 1940 till 1990, under Soviet Union. Soviet Union collapsing, and we, also, we want to remain with it because we are culturally linked to Russia, Ukraine, Belarus. We're like 65% Slavic people, speaking Russian mainly with Ukrainian in some, in some parts and Moldavian in some parts. So Moldova declared its aspiration to unite with Romania. And they were declaring themselves as the last uh, divided nation in Europe after fall of the Berlin Wall. They declared their aspiration to unite with Romania, as well as they proclaimed their Moldavian, which they changed to Romanian language, as the only state language in the country. So it was quite difficult and quite impossible for a Russian-speaking part of Moldova, Moldavian Soviet Socialist Republic, which was Transnistria, to see itself in this future country, especially after reunification with Romania. Romania never had Transnistria as part of it. So it was also considered by Romania as a future headache. So our people, which were only 14% of Moldavian Republic population, but 40% of Moldavian GDP said, guys, we can be together, but we want two things. We want cultural autonomy, having the possibility to speak Russian language, and we want also the like free economic zone because we are industrial republic, industrial part of your country, of this country, your agrarian part, and uh, our industry is linked to the former USSR, so we don't want to be conditioned by Romania in our future economic relations. That were two basic claims. The new elite of Moldova didn't know how to tackle these challenges. So they preferred to silence them or just to send our politicians to prisons. So it was some kind of uh, modern Catalonian example. Yeah, so instead of having dialogue and including your leaders into dialogue, they were just sending them to prisons, causing more and more strikes and more discontent from the ordinary people. So it was a huge popular unrest in early 90s. It was a huge wave of enthusiasm. So the people in Tiraspol was quite enthusiastic. And a lot of people came from Kishinev who didn't want to, like Russian speakers mainly, who didn't want to stay in nationalist Moldova. So they came to Tiraspol and they joined the separatist movement. So it was this kind of conflict that escalated in a couple of years to a four months military conflict that took about 1000 lives and uh, resulted in uh, de facto independence of uh, Transnistria. So Transnistria has its own border, its own currency, its own passports. So how does that work with no UN recognition for the country? Uh, yes, in fact, uh, Transnistria is not recognized by any United Nations uh, country. Uh, it is partly rec it is recognized only by three other unrecognized countries, which are partly recognized by Nagorno-Karabakh in Azerbaijan, by Abkhazia and Ossetia, South Ossetia in Georgia, which are now recognized by five UN members. So, in fact, Transnistrian people have its own, have their own passport, which looks like an old Soviet passport. It just because it was taken in back in early 90s as a, as a model. It has Transnistrian coat of arms, which is 
old Moldovan Soviet Socialist Republic coat of arms with different abbreviation. So it, it looks like old Soviet passport, but it's a red, uh, small little carnet, little book, but it, it's internal document. So it has all the necessary data for the state about you, your place of your registration, your military service, etc., etc. But uh, you, you use it mainly for internal use when you come back to Transnistria. By law, Transnistrians may have double or multiple citizenships. So mainly people use, if they need to travel abroad, they will have to have another citizenship. There are three countries nowadays which will consider Transnistrians, people born in Transnistria, as their possible citizens. It will be Moldova, Ukraine, and Russia. So these three countries can uh, can give to a person born in Transnistria its nationality. So a person, when he comes out of age or when he grows or he, when he, his parents uh, understand that it's time for him to travel, they will choose or the person will choose the nationality in accordance with his future projects. So those people who want to link themselves to Russia or to Ukraine, they will choose Ukrainian or Russian citizenship. Those who see themselves uh, links more to Moldova, Moldavian future, they will choose Moldavian nationality. And they will travel with their second passport abroad. So they will be considered Russians in Russia, Moldavians in Moldova, Ukrainians in Ukraine. But at the same time, when they go back to Tiraspol, they will not show their Ukrainian or Moldavian or Russian passport, they will show their Transnistrian passport. So they will have all rights that any Transnistrian has. So a lot of countries in Eastern Europe are having a bit of a crisis of conscience at the moment, whether they orientate themselves further towards Brussels and the EU or back towards Moscow. Uh, is Transnistria going through this crisis and, and which direction do you think it's going to face? Transnistria is, is a very small country, but it, and it's, it's, it's uh, mainly expert orientated. It gets its money from experts. So we have uh, many industries that depend on our trade with neighbors or with uh, more distant countries. The statistics say that after Ukrainian crisis, their external trade of Transnistria changed significantly from Russia to Europe, to the European Union. 2014 was not only the year of start of Ukrainian crisis, of crisis in the relations of Ukraine and Russia, but also was the, the year when the association agreement of uh, was signed between the EU and Moldova. And as Transnistria, when it needs to export its goods from middle, from mid 2000, years 2000, it has to buy Moldovan custom stamps and Moldovan certificates of origin from Moldovan government. It doesn't pay taxes to Moldovan government, to Moldova, because Moldova never financed Transnistria. But at the same time, in order to legalize our exports due to Ukrainian policy back in mid 2000, we had to change the way how we sell, how we trade with the world. So from 2014, as far as I know, we had the the majority of our trade was with Russia and the East and Ukraine and Belarus. Nowadays, the majority of our trade operations are with the European Union in terms of uh, of trade. 
and European Union and the West. So it is literally uh, conditioned to do that because it's quite difficult to trade nowadays through Ukraine with Russia. It's more complicated. And our people are quite entrepreneurial, so they see where, where the, the opportunities. And the EU, it looks like it uses its soft power, it loses its uh, ec huge economic capacities also to uh, not also to have more influence and more exposure to Transnistria. It's good on one hand because it's uh, it it opens new markets for Transnistrian economy and it makes uh, conditions for development of new sectors of our economy like textile, sewing industry, uh, agriculture as well. But at the same time, it limits our capacity to trade with Russia, which is our traditional and uh, historical, civilizational and cultural uh, partner. And uh, let's say our mother Russia. So Transnistria wasn't the only breakaway republic from Moldova during the fall of the Soviet Union. The other one was Gagauzia, uh, who went down a very different path to what Transnistria did. Can you explain a bit about that? Actually, it had even more grounds to become an independent country than Transnistria, because it's completely different ethnically. It's a, the only ethnic group in Europe that has no its country. These are people that have, have like say, compact territory, their own language, their culture, their traditions, uh, they are Christians, as, by the way, uh, the only Turkic nation which is Christian. They drink wine and they produce good wine. So they had much more grounds to become a republic, a recognized republic when Moldova broke away from the Soviet Union. Uh, and there was a similar conflict. So Gagauzia also tried to proclaim its independence and was looking forward to resist Moldovan nationalism, aggressive Moldovan nationalists. But at some point of time, they uh, desisted in this struggle and they agreed to negotiate the peace process, uh, all, the, all their st autonomous status by peaceful political means. So they went into this process while Transnistria chose another path. And uh, the result they got only proved to Transnistria that it chose the right way. Because Gagauzia got it, got it autonomous status, but during the, during the time they understood that they got cheated by Moldova, and they uh, expressed on many occasions they expressed their discontent, but it was already too late because they voted for that and they accepted, and Moldova just uh, outplayed them in this legalistic, in this uh, juridical casuistics. Uh, so actually, they are now autonomous but with very limited uh, powers actually there are many many gagauzians uh, that form nowadays migration from moldova to transnistria they come there because it's uh, they don't speak moldavian they speak their own gagauzian language or russian so some of them when they migrate some of them come to transnistria it's a, it's a comfortable place for their migration nowadays so we, we used to have some kind of fraternity in early years, in the early 90s, but then uh, our relations are still good. 
we consider ourselves like uh, the possible partners and, and still partners. And there is a mutual respect. The only thing that they chose the way to negotiate with Moldova that actually, uh, let's say, tricked them. So what do you think the future holds for Transnistria? Do you think that it will get the recognition it deserves? I think I think that uh, Transnistria nowadays depends a lot on the countries around, on the huge evolution of the regional politics. We see that many things are changing. We see that uh, what is happening now in relations of Russia and Ukraine, we couldn't even imagine that 10 years ago. We couldn't imagine that five years ago, I think. But uh, we see that, and we don't know what happens in five years. The situation is so quickly changing. And throughout the history, these things in Ukraine happened already many times throughout its history. And it's always quite turbulent, but it's never long lasting. We will see how history shows itself this time. But uh, a lot of things in Transnistria, especially linked with Transnistria, depend on how the relations of Russia and Ukraine, Russia and Moldova develop in its future. Yeah, in my, in my view, in my view, Transnistria has already proved to itself and to the others that it can be independent. 30 years is a big age for the country. And if you speak nowadays to young Moldovans who are below 30 years of age, if you ask them, what is Transnistria for you? They will say, uh, it's another country. They do not consider Transnistria to be a part of Moldova. They, they feel it as a different state, as a different culture, as a different, maybe friendly, yes, that we trade with each other, but they consider us different still. And our young generation also considers Moldova very close, but different country. Yeah, we can travel there, they can travel to us, they can transit, we can transit them, but uh, still we consider each other quite different. And you feel it when you travel to both sides of the of Nistria River. And uh, so Transnistria politically and historically deserved its independence, but many things depend on how relations uh, between Russia, Ukraine, between Russia and EU, between Moldova and Romania, how they develop. It's a very complicated soup Let's put it like this. So it's 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 difficult to predict, but 30 years of Transnistria independence, it's already a, a, a quite a sane proof that Transnistria is not an easy case. Transnistria is stuck in two minds. If they turn towards Moscow, it would mean stability, a nation that understands them and supports them with money, arms and gas a country that helped build the foundations of the nation, but is spending less and less money due to financial problems inside its own borders. Being the bipolar world of Europe, the only other option is to turn towards Brussels and the EU, with promises of economic development like we've seen in Bulgaria and Poland. But that would mean throwing away their identity, their language, their rights, and submitting to reintegration with Moldova. It's a question that is likely to be the centre of politics in the region for decades to come. What we might not understand, though, is why Russia is so keen to support these breakaway republics, like the ones in Moldova, the ones in Georgia, and the ones in Azerbaijan. So for that, we turn to our next guest. Part 3. Promises made, 
Promises broken. Transnistria, however, oh boy. That's one of the uh, enclaves which would be considered, you know, they're kind of like Crimea for Russia, or more likely Donetsk, because it's basically a piece of Soviet Union still existing in Europe. Except they're kind of bizarre. They're in the same position as Donetsk or Lugansk, or Abkhazia, or North Ossetia in Georgia, or Nagorno-Karabakh in between Armenia and Azerbaijan, where there are still, you know, uh, struggles. Kristjops Andresen is from the University of Riga, with a background in political science and Soviet history. He is also the host of the podcast The Eastern Border, which focuses on politics and news from Russia and the ex-states of the Soviet Union. The following piece is taken from an interview I did on the Eastern Border program about two weeks ago. Thing is that if you lived under the Iron Curtain, as I've mentioned in my past episodes, it was very like uh, very super. Even though Soviet Union was supposed to be like these republics joining together, it wasn't so. So Russians went in the everywhere else basically as colonizers, and they were very very because you know you had to have street names in Russia, and Russia was used like English. And the local population was quite often brutally oppressed, and Russians had special privileges. So, kind of, it, it took my own country a lot of time to get away from this kind of Russophobic things. But that's what's happening in, in Ukraine and Moldova. You know, countries that recently have started this new cycle to democracy. In saying that, though, the Transnistrians did have a referendum, and they voted overwhelmingly to remain close to Russia, if not annexed by Moscow itself. It's quite obvious because they, why they voted yes, though, because at their current status, they're like, hey, well, uh, joining Russia would actually be an improvement, which is a thing that very few, few places get to say, you know. Do you think the people of Transnistria are pining for the days of the Soviet Union? They might be nostalgic for old times there. People here act from more pragmatic reasons, right? So they keep to their tradition, they keep to the Soviet nostalgia, because, you know, back then we, we didn't have globalism, we didn't have internet, we didn't have access to other things at all. It's just the thing that there's a strong feeling of nostalgia, and, well, when it comes to my generation, I was born in 1989, of the so-called renewal kids. I'm from the people who were born in the hopes that when as the Soviet Union crashes, we are supposed to build capitalism. But we were raised in the way that is clearly Soviet realism. Like, you know, we were expected to build capitalism, but with the with the same moral and ethical code of Soviets. But uh, that's why I also can uh, understand why people would want to have their breakaway republics, why they would want to be close to Russia. Because nostalgia holds a lot of power here, and, like, World War II is still a very, very important issue here and it's still politically divisive you know so i can understand those people being part of the soviet union also had a lot of benefits back in the day it used to have a guaranteed job it used to have a guaranteed income uh used to have housing but yeah, it also used to offer pretty decent retirement packages which the russians are trying their best to uh, still you know, honor but that's changing very slowly isn't it here in latvia like the russian age of retirement is about 10 years used to be 10 years below ours. Uh, men could go into retirement at, uh, I think, 60, and women could go to retirement at uh, 55. They increased this by five years, which caused an outrage. But the thing is that uh, you could have all your Soviet era, because they are the the Jure, uh, inheritance of the Soviets, right? So we are not. 
So in Russia, they still kind of count all the Soviet, like, you know, time you spent working and Soviet taxes paid in your retirement kind of funds. So a lot of people did that. They kind of advertised, they advertised this in the television and everywhere because, you know, hey, get the Russian citizenship and uh, receive Russian pensions, right? And a lot of people did, but then Russian economy collapsed due to sanctions and now those people are like literally f This is very important for Russia as well. Having lots of their citizens in another country means good remittances back to Russia, an increase in Russian influence over domestic politics, and a pretext for war if required. You know, it's much more powerful to have Latvia cracks down on Russian citizens than it is to have Latvia cracks down on Latvian citizens. You know, if they hold Russian passports, they are referred to as Russian citizens, which they are. So it gives Russia a pretext to go in and, you know, defend the citizens' rights if they are Russians. And it plays up very well for the Russian media as well. That's like rain, you know. It's gonna get worse. But the thing I keep hearing from people all over Russia and the ex-Soviet countries is no matter how bad it is, it is still not as bad as the 90s. When the Soviet Union collapsed, it was a disastrous time where the entire country's system of government collapsed overnight and a state of near anarchy took over the place. And the Soviet Union went from one big union of a country into 15 separate republics, many of those having breakaway republics of their own as well. Uh, do you think the people of... of Transnistria and a few of these other republics are willing to put up with a lot to just avoid going back to that tumultuous period. We, we see, to understand the level of nothing, uh, prices literally rose by uh, like 12 to 20 times. That's one. Salaries, just because we were just thrown into the free market without anything. And I remember my aunt making about 25 American dollars per month per month because uh, everything went to hell because the Soviet Union was built on the basis, you know, it wasn't built on the market basis at all. And to make things worse, everyone received privatization certificates like vouchers, like, you know, like, uh, and that happened everywhere in the post-Soviet sphere where, where things went from nationalized to privatized, but the Soviet military personnel received that too and they knew they were going to go out of the country and they wanted to stay here, not go to Russia. So they, uh, and that happened in Moldova and Romania and like everywhere that was in this side of the, of the Iron Curtain, everywhere. So another big moment of the 90s was the deal struck between Mikhail Gorbachev, who's the uh, leader of the Soviet Union, and George Bush Sr., who was the American president at the time. And this deal was struck between the two in 1989, which is the last couple of years of the Soviet Union. The deal was that Germany, which was split in two at the time, would be allowed to unify back into one German country, something that Russian seniors who had survived the Nazi attacks were deeply disturbed by. So politically, it was a very, very tough move for Russia to make. In exchange for this, the Americans promised the Russians that NATO, the Western anti-Russia alliance, would not intake any countries into its ranks from east of Germany. This caveat is incredibly important to the Russians, who over the last few centuries have been invaded from the west multiple times, by the French, the Swedish and the Germans twice. Mostly because the entrance into the Russian heartland through modern day Poland, Belarus and the Baltics is so flat and easy to traverse. I mean, the flat territory allowed Germany to drive its tanks incredibly quickly from their positions in western Poland right to the gates of Moscow in the Second World War. This devastated the country and left lifelong scars in Russia. You can't go anywhere without uh, monuments to the great patriotic war wherever you go. 
so Russia really wants to make sure they have a buffer between NATO and Moscow, as Moscow is incredibly important to the Russians for a number of reasons. I would say even more. I say even more. See, the thing is, like, uh, I don't know how it's like in Australia, but I know that businesses tend to be decentralized. For example, in the United States and Canada, you know, there might be a big, there might be big businesses in, like, say, Quebec or, uh, on the other hand, of British Columbia and, and Vancouver mostly. But in Russia, even the small business, even like the small business mine, like doing some diamond mining or whatever, uh, every business is registered in Moscow. Moscow gets all the taxes. It's literally a very center-periphery relationship. Moscow is the uber center of everything, and the next big city is St. Petersburg, which is used to be the previous capital, and they still take pride in themselves. So uh, the thing is that everything goes through Moscow. Finances, everything. It's Moscow and the rest of Russia, basically. Almost every train, plane, or highway travels through Moscow. You cannot get a flight from Volgograd to Nizhny Novgorod without going through it. I do have to give you a compliment, by the way. Your Russian pronunciation of names and places is excellent. Better than most Westerners, by the way. An unfortunate bad habit from drinking so much vodka over the years. So taking Moscow would be severing the heart of all Russian transportation, leadership and communications, which is why they are so desperate to make sure that people cannot take it easily. Back when the deal was made, the Russian defensive borders were all the way in eastern Germany, about 2,500 kilometers away. They were also in Czechia and Hungary, where they could easily slow the Allies down with brutal fighting in the Carpathian Mountains in the event of an invasion. And the border in the south was all the way down in Greece, where a chain of mountains, the Thrace Mountains, would make it absolute hell for NATO to push through. So Russia was in a good position, only having one easy way to drive tanks through. And in the event of that war, they had to cross 2,500 kilometers to reach Moscow. Now, the Allies made the deal in 1989, and the Soviet Union collapsed very shortly after. And in the chaos of the Soviet collapse, NATO betrayed the Russian agreement and offered membership to many of the former Soviet countries, including Poland, Czechia, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, as well as many of the Yugoslav nations when they collapsed. Now, Russia's defensive borders are much, much closer to the capital. The Allies no longer have the Greek mountains to cross. They no longer have to try and get across the Carpathians. Uh, and Allied troops are now stationed in eastern Poland and Latvia, only 600 kilometers from Moscow, with nothing but flat plains between them. Again, that is over a thousand kilometers closer than Hitler's starting off point for his invasion of Russia. And again, Hitler got to the gates of Moscow. So some of the Russians I've met over the years feel very betrayed, and now they feel surrounded by NATO troops. I mean, NATO bombers are now permanently stationed in Narva, which is only about 20 minutes flight from St. Petersburg, which is pretty insane to think about. I can understand why the Russians are a little nervous at the moment, with the Russian defensive border now just being Belarus, which is all very flat, perfect tank territory, uh, Ukraine, which is a good chunk of the country is fighting to pull away from Russia anyway, uh, and Moldova, where the Russian defensive line is on the Dnieper River, which is Transnistria, effectively. So I kind of see where the Russians are coming from to try and gain a better defensive position in the case of an allied attack. Uh, but what does the average Latvian think about all this? We are very happy about this because, hey, in the Baltics at least, we uh, take our defense very seriously because we have been conquered by Russians like multiple times. And we're, uh, we're also be conquered by the Swedish, the French, the British, uh, 
the Polish, uh, everyone, okay? So joining NATO was like, hey, how about we uh, have our own country? Incredibly understandable there, particularly for the Baltic nations who have been invaded by Russia quite a few times and suffered very badly each time. But the Russians are desperate to keep what border they have left from joining NATO. Uh, NATO's Article 2 states you cannot join if you have a border dispute, otherwise it would trigger Article 5 and World War 3 would begin. So with Georgia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Armenia and Moldova having breakaway republics, it prevents them from joining NATO and putting Russia in an even worse defensive position. <laughs> I'm going to show my age here, but I used to play a game called Medieval Total War, the very original one. And in it, each country had nation's objectives, what your main aims as a, as a nation was what your country should be aiming to achieve as part of the game. I think if the game were modernized and set in modern-day Russia, uh, the goals would be very different. I, I think the main goal of Russia would be to reattain good defensive positions in the West to prevent an easy invasion. I think Transnistria's would be to gain recognition and, and function normally as a state without having to bend to the wills of Kiev, uh, Kisinau, uh, Brussels or Moscow. But I have no idea how they do that. But yeah, Transnistria is, is stuck that way. I completely agree, and... Well, like I said, um, I hope they kind of get through it, because... Uh, it's not gonna get easier. Like, it's always written in Russian history, it only gets worse. Transnistria, a nation on almost no maps, actually holds a critical linchpin in the entire balance of Eastern Europe. It's a shield for the Russian southern flank. It's a power source for the rest of Moldova. It's the Romania's fertile agricultural land. It's a tiny sliver that if played wrong, could spark the next great European war. The people here are just trying to live their lives while the UN refuses to acknowledge them. I hope they can improve the situation, but with the stakes this high, with Russia, NATO and Moldova staking claims, this needs to be handled with incredible care, because what's at stake is the entirety of Europe. A huge thank you to all of our guests for this episode. We cannot do this show without you. If you want to check out Tyrone's book, Bastard Republic, you can purchase it from Amazon. It's really amazing, and it's the basis for a lot of the research on this episode. If you want to hear more from Dimitri, he runs an organization called Go Transnistria where they organize guided tours of the country. You can check out more about it on the website and organize a tour for yourself. I highly recommend it. To check out the rest of Christy Apt's interview with myself, or simply get some of the most up-to-date info coming out of Russia and their sphere, I highly recommend you check out his podcast, The Eastern Border. It's great stuff, and I have been a fan of the show for years now, so it was absolutely amazing to team up with Christy Apt's on this one. If you want to support our show, you can help me in one of a few ways. Like and subscribe to the podcast and to our social media platforms at The Redline Pod. Or simply share the episodes around. It really does help get the show out there. Otherwise, you can donate directly to the pod via our Patreon, via our website or Facebook, www.theredlinepodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And as I say in Tarazpol, das vidanya o miniatorvarich.